Does Monday at the office feel like a storm? Not with Microsoft Copilot. That feeling when Copilot gets everyone up to speed instantly? It's sunny again. When Copilot simplifies complex data so your teams can act, that sun's shining on a beach. And when Copilot uncovers hidden insights, you're on that beach with your people and you find buried treasure. That's Microsoft Copilot. Learn more at Microsoft.com slash AI for all. Dreaming of a better sleep? Tossing and turning is not your destiny. And Ollie is here to help. Ollie invites you to sink into sweet, sweet slumber to improve your mental and physical health and overall wellness. More than just melatonin, Ollie's ingredients help you unwind your mind for a delightfully dreamy drift off. Sleep is on the way at Ollie.com. That's O L L Y.com. A note to listeners. The following podcast contains material that may not be appropriate for all audiences. When I walked in, I saw the bodies by the fireplaces in the ballroom. He was much more of a conservative guy, and she wasn't. And, um, you know, they were... I believe, oil and water. The biggest um, issue with them as a neighbor was um, John List himself. And he didn't really want us to be anywhere near his house or his kids. I'm Jessica Remo. And I'm Rebecca Everett. And this is Father Wants Us Dead, a podcast about the John List murders from NJ.com and the Star Ledger. In episode one, Jess and I talked about the killings, how they shook the community of Westfield, New Jersey to the core. And in episode two, we took a deep dive into John List himself, a deeply religious man obsessed with propriety and faith and not showing weakness. But now we're going to get into what happens when the already unstable John List found himself in the pressure cooker after moving to this well-to-do suburb not far from Manhattan. I think when people think of the List murders, they think of these sensational headlines of a psycho killer story, a purely evil man who just snapped. And let's be clear, to some degree, that might be exactly what this was. But before the murders, this was also the story of a marriage, one probably ill-fated from the start that just kept souring and souring over 20 years. But in this case, it doesn't end in divorce. It ends in bloodshed. But it's also about so much more, Jess. It's about a man struggling to make the life he thinks he should have. But he's such an unbending, single-minded guy that he just keeps doing the same thing he's always done as his life is coming apart. It's like everyone's in the family car, heading toward the cliff edge. And instead of hitting the brake, John List is on cruise control. And then at the very end, when he really could choose a different route, He floors it. Now that we're getting to the buildup right before John List's murders, I think we should say that for those of you who know the John List story, we want you to keep an open mind here. Because in researching this case and going through the files, talking to friends, learning about the List family's final days, Rebecca and I both came to kind of change our minds about some things, including this idea that no one could have seen this coming. Because we'll also hear about how, in the final days, 
someone started to see the truth. John List was planning to destroy his whole family. We've talked about how John List's married life wasn't easy from the start, with losing his first job, Helen's miscarriages, and of course they were complete opposites. But when John List landed a job at Xerox in Rochester, New York in 1961, he felt like he hit a stride at work. Maybe he had finally figured things out. Here he was in the big-time corporate world with all its trappings, including an expense account. Suddenly, John and Helen are jet-setting across Europe. In his memoir, John writes that Helen splurged on souvenirs like Waterford Crystal and Irish Plaid. In Germany, they even binged on room service. Expensive? Sure. But what did we care? Xerox picked up the hotel bill. Jess, I have to point something out here. This has to be the first and last time that John List, careful accountant, ever had room service. Oh, for sure, Rebecca. And only because it was on someone else's tab. It's all quite a change from his humble upbringings. It was downright exciting. Like my career, which had reached a level I had never dreamed of achieving. On the sunny side of 40, I was clearly a success. I was totally unaware of the storm clouds building on my professional horizon. And like many marriages, they do have these moments of real happiness. They're traveling, they're going to parties, feeling like their lives are on the way up. But we also know there are major foundational problems. Problems that only compounded over 10 years. And John is quiet, cold, reserved. He doesn't express his feelings. But Helen is the opposite. She always seems to say what's on her mind, no filters. And it really seemed to bug John because he even mentions in his memoir this one time that Helen told a neighbor that her dentist husband should not be addressed as a doctor because he's not an MD. I can't imagine that went over well. And List also said that when he was interviewing for the job at Xerox, she complained to his soon-to-be boss that their comped hotel room was seedy complaining to the guy who was interviewing him. That is a bold move. That may be why, after John got the job, his boss said something prophetic. John writes in his memoir that this boss said he needed to, quote, get rid of Helen. But Rebecca, we also know divorce was not an option for John List, not the way he was raised. He also didn't think it was proper to fight, even. But his wife thought verbal confrontations cleared the air. Helen straight up told him he was too much under his mother's thumb. And these comments start to get to him. One time, she said something at the dinner table, and John grabbed and lifted the table so high that the dishes slid off onto the floor. Yeah, we're definitely getting peeks at his temper here, Jess. And it's also clear in his memoir that List was bothered by Helen's drinking. We mentioned this a bit in the last episode. I enjoyed a friendly drink as much as anyone. But I was worried, by the way, Helen needed more than just a few drinks. When she went shopping, a bottle of whiskey often came home in her shopping bag. After a while, it became obvious that Helen was hooked on a deadly poison. I only wish I'd known about AA at the time. He said he even tried to water down the booze, but nothing worked. One time, Helen got drunk at a party and was getting a kiss from the host when List slugged the guy. He got kicked out, but she stayed and partied the way he tells it. Do you believe this about her, Jess? Like, 
is she really a drunk or is he just such a Puritan that he's just blowing it all out of proportion? I mean, I kind of do because a few relatives of Helen's did talk about it in news articles that came out later, but we know she was really sick and unhappy. So maybe this was self-medicating. Yeah. I really wish I knew what was going through her mind because we know she didn't have an easy life losing her first husband, raising three kids while you're that sick. And apparently her marriage to John wasn't like a passionate love affair. Right. In the early days, they couldn't keep their hands off each other. List even dishes on their honeymoon road trip when Helen points to a hill off the road and suggests they make love. They spread out a blanket and get naked. We could watch the cars traveling on the road far below and the possibility of their watching us provided an extra measure of excitement as we joined our bodies. That sounds like a newlywed thing, because obviously we know that fades. Yes. In his memoir, Liz complains that Helen rarely reaches orgasm anymore, which makes it less pleasurable for him. And he blames this all on alcoholism, her health, and the passage of time. He says they tried to spice it up by buying what he called blue movies and taking sexy Polaroids. And they even considered swinging, but decided against going through with it. This is the kind of story we hear about a lot of marriages, right? They start hot and heavy, and then things get hard. But they keep trying. It's like, whose sense of humor is this? <laughs> hey, Gabe Glock. Hey, How are you? This is Rebecca, nice my co-host. Uh, but not related to Rick Everett. No, I get that a lot, Now we're going to hear from Gabe Gluck, <laughs> a former Star Ledger reporter who covered the List case for years. We talked with him in his backyard in Westfield, where he's cultivated quite the gardens in his retirement. Beautiful. Yeah, nice. It, it's a work in progress. Oh, these are incredible. Those peonies, mine don't look that nice. It was the biggest story of Gabe's career. He could talk about the case all day and was definitely the quickest to respond to our interview request. We instantly had a bond as fellow reporters and could totally relate to that rush of being the local reporter on a national story. Yeah, it was really fun to talk with him because he was so exuberant about the case. And he distinctly remembers learning about the demeaning things Helen would say to John. You're half the man my first husband was. I mean, I don't think anyone wants to hear that, male or female. And then you're constantly being held up to this Korean War hero and... You've got nothing to show for your war record. Helen was just running him into the ground. That's why Gabe believes Helen was John's first victim. You know, um, you, you know, in the musical, uh, what was the musical with the, um, not, it's not cabaret, it's where, in the jail, where the, the, one of the main songs is He Had It Coming. Um, Yes, thank you. Okay, Chicago, favorite song is He Had It Coming. There's a part of you that starts singing She Had It Coming. I know that's terrible to say. I apologize to all concerned. But, but, but anyway, but there, there, Helen becomes a much um, more nuanced character in all this. And not, should she be murdered? Absolutely not. But do you know why John List is so angry at her? Well, now we're understanding a little bit more of, you know, why she takes the first one. I mean, of course she didn't deserve it. She didn't deserve anything that happened to her. But I do think that John killed Helen, partly just because he was enraged by all that. 
I definitely think he had resentments, and we'll get into that when we get to his confession letter in the next episode. But I think this whole theory that kind of developed over the years that Helen was a nightmare wife who drove him to do this awful thing is overblown because it was about so much more than just Helen. And it feels kind of like victim blaming. And honestly, I wonder if she was just tough on him because she saw what a repressed, tightly wound guy he was and thought maybe she could help him learn to express himself. I mean, it's a big if, but if he had known better how to say what was really going on with him, maybe he could have asked for help instead of letting the pressure mount until he just killed everyone. We also have to remember Helen was really not herself for a lot of this time due to that mystery ailment her doctors couldn't figure out. Only it turns out it's not a mystery as much as a secret and one Helen has been keeping for more than a dozen years. The illness behind all her worsening symptoms is actually syphilis. That's right. All that time she's been talking about what a great war hero her first husband is. She's known that he gave her syphilis when he was unfaithful in their marriage. By the time John List finally learns about it, the final stages were atrophying her brain, affecting her behavior. It's really tragic because syphilis is a curable disease, but Helen would never be cured, and it was slowly killing her. We said earlier in this episode that this was about more than just a bad marriage and Helen's health problems. The other big problem in John List's life is that he loses jobs. Not just one job, he loses almost every job he's ever had. And that's what happens at Xerox. He can't keep up with the pace of the work and the axe falls. We talked to a psychiatrist, Stephen Simmering, who would interview List many years later. He said List's personality was the true problem in his career. And one after another, he was let go. And it was never because of uh, work performance problems. It was because of his personality. Uh, his coworkers say they couldn't get along with him. He was too dour and too strict and too much of a wet blanket and uh, too stringent. And he just didn't get along with people. He didn't fight with people, but people didn't like him. And the same thing happened again, and the same thing happened again. List eventually will find a job at First National Bank in Jersey City. It sounds good. He's vice president with an office on the banks of the Hudson. And with his fancy new job, he's looking for a fancy new home. He likes Westfield, especially that it has the same kind of conservative Lutheran church he was raised in and a parochial school to shape his kids into the perfect little Lutherans that he wants. But most importantly, John and Helen fall in love with Breeze Knoll, that stately 19-room mansion that would end up being more of a curse than a blessing. They can't really afford it. But remember, they've had a taste of the high life with Xerox, and they're fighting to keep up. So they buy Breeze Knoll, even if John has to ask his mother for help with the down payment. Liz said both he and Helen craved this image of prosperity. He called buying the mansion conspicuous consumption in the extreme. He blames the big spending mostly on her in his memoir, pointing out that she only perked up for trips for shopping or buying a nicer car to go with his nicer job. But it's also just him. He takes out a second mortgage to remodel the third floor into an apartment for his mother, Alma, but also because he has to keep up with the Joneses. He remembers replacing a small lamp with an expensive chandelier, quote, worthy of Versailles. 
Gabe Gluck said this impulse enlist didn't really even make sense. He certainly had a number of jobs in his life that would have made for a modest middle-class existence. And he grew up, you know, in a modest middle-class, you know, home. So where that came about, that he had to be a successful businessman on the north side of Westfield, we never got an answer to that. But reality quickly sets in. John's nice new job? Turns out it's more of a public relations gig, the opposite of a job that would suit him. He's fired within a year. Which brings us back to downtown Westfield and another one of John List's sad little charades. All right, so Westfield train station, and this was John List's hideout because after he lost his last job, he was too embarrassed to admit it to Helen, and so instead of telling her, he just got up, put on his suit, grabbed his briefcase, and came and sat at the train station as if he were going to work. Yeah, this is just such a famous image from the John List story, this this picture of him just, you know, sitting at the train station all day, reading the paper or whatever, because he just can't admit to himself that he's failing, he's not providing. And to him, providing for a family is just a huge part of what it means to be a man. And did he just sit here all day feeling like a failure? I mean, that'll put it put it right in your face. You're not boarding the train. You're not going to a job. You're not heading into New York City. You screwed it all up again, you know? Right, and just all those hours he could have been doing something about it. And instead he was just sitting here reading a book. His image was everything. Here's how retired Westfield Police Chief Barney Tracy described it to us. He didn't want to know, he didn't want people to know yeah, he was going to walk out that door every day, you know, to catch the 7.30 train out of Westfield. And people, if people were watching, he went out there, jacket and tie, briefcase, squared shoulders. I'm John List. Wow. And he went and he sat there and read a book or a want ads or whatever. But, you know, and, and again, like, the... The other part is in Westfield and in his church, there's a lot of great people, a lot of good people. And he could have asked any one of them for help, and they would have helped him. No questions asked. Don't get it. But John List won't ask for help. Not ever. He just keeps chugging along, telling Helen everything is fine, and buying her what she wants. Here's Gabe again. He could never really turn to her and say, this is who I am. I'm not the guy who can buy a house like this. Um, but for whatever reason, uh, you know, his own insecurities, he had to get that house and he had to make it look like he was a success. So he put on the shirt and tie and suit every day and went to the train station even though he didn't have a job. Like I said, he could have kept a, a shrink busy for years just unwrapping all the layers. 
This is a rare moment where I actually feel bad for John List. He's a middle-aged man who, just because of who he is, cannot see a way out of this hole and also can't stop himself from digging. I also think it was a different time and societal expectations were different. It feels like now more people are okay asking for help or filing for bankruptcy, but John List said he never filed for unemployment, even though he needed it desperately, because he was too proud. He also never settled for a lower-paying job. He just kept looking for another accounting job, as usual. He finally gets one with a company that runs those photography studios in the mall. But then the company moves from Manhattan to Long Island, and List decides not to move to follow it. He stays in Westfield and does a very strange thing for someone with no social skills. He takes a gig selling life insurance policies. Another thing he never should have done. And the bad decisions keep getting compounded. Because to no one's surprise, John isn't selling much, and the family is quickly going broke. He says he borrowed funds from his mother, but eventually she cuts him off. And before long, there's a note from the savings and loan company saying they could be foreclosed on. We know John List had been hurtling toward financial ruin for years, but now he's nearly there. The image he tried so hard to control, the life he wanted in perfect order, was all coming apart on him like a house of cards. In any case, the stage was set for the tragedy that was to follow. Father Wants Us Dead will be right back. Hey, it's Kaylee Cuoco for Priceline. Ready to go to your happy place for a happy price? Well, why didn't you say so? Just download the Priceline app right now and save up to 60% on hotels. So whether it's Cousin Kevin's Kazoo concert in Kansas City, go Kevin! Or Becky's Bachelorette Bash in Bermuda. You never have to miss a trip ever again. So download the Priceline app today. Your savings are waiting. Go to your happy place for a happy price. Go to your happy price, Priceline. First, the bad news. SAP Business AI won't help you generate cubist versions of your family's holiday photos. But it will help you understand which supplier is best to help you roll out your plant-based packaging in Southeast Asia. Or identify the training your junior project manager needs to rise up the ranks. And automate repetitive tasks while you focus on big innovations. So you can be ready for the next opportunity. Revolutionary technology. Real-world results. That's SAP Business AI. So for John List, things could not be worse. He can't make ends meet. His wife is unkind to him and dying from a disease she kept secret for most of their marriage. And there are three kids mixed up in all of this mess. So we wanted to know more about what life was like during this time for the List kids. We reached out to dozens of their former friends and classmates, Rebecca, I was struck by how much they remember and how they can still put themselves right back into who they were during these years. And they were all just kids. I agree, Jess. I mean, after 50 years, they're still carrying a lot of this heartache around. Thinking about these friends who never got to grow up, go to college, have a life. Let's start with Fred, the youngest. He was seven when they moved to Westfield and just 13 when he was killed. 
Universally, everyone we talked to said the Lisp boys were both shy, but Fred more so. Susan Cousins Jankowitz, a close friend of Patty's who we met in the first episode, said Fred was sweet, innocent, and agreeable. He had a little bit of a lisp, and when his big sister gave him a little ribbing about it, he never seemed to mind. It's just kind of been fun, and Patty would be like, Fred, what are we doing for dinner? You know, what, what's, what's on the menu? You know, and then the two of us would just get hysterical. But, but he, was, he was a great kid, um, very good-hearted, kind of like you're, if you had to picture a Boy Scout, it would be Fred. John Jr. was nearly nine years old when they moved to Westfield and only 15 when he died. One of his best friends was Charlie Jones, who we heard from before. John was a big kind of geeky guy, and, uh, but a nice, nice, nice kid. I mean, really super well-mannered, and he was a diligent student. He, was, he wasn't, wasn't a dummy. He was not gregarious at all. He was a rather shy person, I thought. Charlie spent many afternoons playing at the List House and said he can't remember ever seeing John List smile. He said he was just very cold. And the house itself just felt cold. It was largely empty. He and John Jr. used to grab brooms and play floor hockey with tennis balls in the unfurnished ballroom. Home life was definitely, you could tell, I mean, much weirder than mine. Um, I, you know, come from a very close, loving family, and I never, I didn't think about it at the time, but thinking back on it, that, that's not what they were. They were very rules-based, um, you no. know, protected. The kids were protected. Right, right, but not a, not a warm feeling. No, place. not warm at all. Maybe it's because the story is so overwhelmingly sad, but these conversations with the childhood friends, I just loved hearing what they used to get up to, like their their antics and mischief. Because the List kids had hard lives. I, I don't think you can pretend that they didn't. But it makes me feel a little better that they had some fun and, you know, some close friendships. And at least they had each other. I mean, I have two sisters I'm close with. You do too. And it feels like they were really tight and looked out for each other. So now we're going to talk about Patty. And before we do, I just want to say this is a part of the story that we really wanted to tell right. I think some previous tellings of the list story have painted her just as a bad girl, but that's not the full picture or fair to her memory. Absolutely. And we're grateful her friends trusted us to get her story right. Some of what they told us, especially in the last few months of Patty's life, might make you rethink that whole narrative that no one knew what was coming. Patty was going on 11 when the family moved to Westfield. Two of her close friends were Susan Cousins Jankowitz, and the other was Rhonda Conway. Her last name at that time was Hanson. I was so glad I got to speak with both of them. I got the sense they were both rather hesitant to return my call, but Susan especially said she wanted to do it kind of to honor Patty. As I remember one time, it, it was hot as hell out there. I guess it must have been a summer. And John had just come in from mowing the lawn and he was like all sweaty and stuff. And he came in and got himself a drink and sat down for a few minutes and I just tried to talk to him a little bit. And I saw him like red faced and I thought, oh, you know, there he is being the dutiful dad out, you know, mowing the lawn in the middle of the summer heat. Um, so he was nice to me and kind to me, um, but you never really got that warm fuzzy. From him. Rhonda told me that once they were in middle school, 
she and Patty started doing some stuff that most parents wouldn't be thrilled about, and especially John List, like smoking cigarettes and cutting class. Well, I can remember Patty and I would skip a lot of time in school. Um, sometimes we'd take the bus and go into Elizabeth, or other times we'd go back to her house. I mean, the house was so big, and you could get lost in it. And um, actually, her mother knew a few times, and we'd be up in her mother's room a time or two, you know, just talking to her. Then in high school, around age 15, Patty starts doing something else that John List also disapproved of. She joined a community theater group. How is that a big deal, Jess? Well, Rebecca, to John List, it is. You remember we met Ed Saradaki in the first episode, a friend of Patty's from Drama Club. Ed said it was clear that John List was not thrilled about his daughter playing any adult roles. And he just thought acting in general was a waste. But it really becomes her passion and the group members become her close friends. Ed said she was one of the more innocent teens in the group. Some of the others would drink alcohol and experiment with drugs. But the people we talked to said they never saw Patty do anything more than try marijuana. Ed also said that everyone could tell that Mr. List was a severe kind of a guy and not someone to mess with. When List would pick up Patty from rehearsals, the room would go silent. All he had to do was walk into the room. He never raised his voice. He didn't have to. If Patty didn't react fast enough, all you'd hear him say was, Patricia, it's time. So Jess, Susan Cousins-Jankowitz had some honestly kind of heartbreaking observations about what was going on with Patty and her father at this point. She said it wasn't just as simple as a teen being rebellious. Pat knew what she wanted, but she also loved her dad. I'd use the word resignation, that she was realizing at some point, Rebecca, that she was kind of choosing her life over what John wanted for her and I think there was a little bit of sadness if, if, if I'm being honest that I think she realized that she was coming across as, as disappointing to him but there was also again that that self-confidence that said you know dad I love you but you, you, you gotta let me find my own way here yeah this conversation with Susan definitely made me sad She said, you just want your parents to be proud of you. And it sounds like Helen was supportive of the kids, but Patty was never going to get that approval from John List. In episode one, we heard from Chris Day. You'll remember him walking us through the funeral and talking about what it was like to carry Patty's casket. Chris is 71 now, retired and happily married, but we really went down memory lane for hours, sitting on this bench by the river in Trenton talking about his memories of Patty, you know, both happy and sad. He's a really sweet, sensitive guy, and it's clear losing her that way left him with a lot of pain and guilt. Um, well, you know, I never really talk about this thing. I never really um, brought it up. It's the first time that I'm really talking about it. Chris told me even people he's really close with don't know he dated Patty List before she died. She had just turned 16 and he was 20 when they got together around March of 1971. This was about eight months before her death. They had their first kiss on a snowy night when Pat had him sneak out to an old kid's playhouse behind the mansion. He flicked a lighter to signal that he was there. 
So about 10 minutes later, she came out with a comforter. And uh, if I say where we had our first kiss, I say that's, I know we definitely had our first kiss there in that playhouse. It was all kind of cozy. Chris said it was obvious John List did not like him, and that would contribute to their breakup later in the summer. He was an older guy, not in college, and he wasn't Lutheran. Chris and Patty stayed friendly, though. He recalls her playing this bodacious robotic babe in a bathing suit in the musical Lil Abner. I remember before we started doing our skits, uh, she ran across the stage in her bathing suit and then ran back, got something, then ran back to where she came from. And somebody in the audience said, hey, do that again! Because, <laughs> you know, she was in her bathing suit. And later that fall, Chris said he and Patty were slowly rekindling their romance. On the last weekend of her life, he drove her to visit a friend at Ryder University. But when Chris went to drive her home that Sunday, he did something he regrets to this day. He invited a friend of theirs, a girl, to ride along. He didn't realize until later that this would upset Patty. And even though it was a small thing, and even though it's been 50 years, he can't forget that their final hours together were marred by his mistake. I looked and I, I said, there'll be other times. There'll be other days. Um, I didn't know that it was going to be like the last day. Sorry. It's okay. <laughs> I, I got bent. <laughs> Sorry, but that, that's, yeah, I really didn't know. Gosh, it breaks my heart to hear him so torn up about this still. To Chris, this is one reason the loss was so hard. He hurt this person he cared for, and he couldn't make it right before she was gone. He said that's why he agreed to talk about it now, after decades of basically keeping it a secret. Chris said he wants to confess it all and be forgiven. He wants to forgive himself. This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Do you have a point of sale system you can trust or is it a real POS? You need Shopify for retail. From accepting payments to managing inventory, Shopify POS has everything you need to sell in person. Go to shopify.com slash system, all lowercase, to take your retail business to the next level today. That's shopify.com slash system. Next, we'll hear about the List family's final days and how the pressure just kept building for John. His finances, his marriage, his religious beliefs, his kids— we'll hear about the crucial moments where the cracks in John List's careful, reserved facade were starting to show, including to his daughter. We heard earlier in this episode about Patty and Rhonda skipping school and getting into other mischief. So by 1971, in the final months before the murders, they were not allowed to hang out. Both of their fathers thought the other girl was a bad influence. But sometime that summer, the girls snuck out of their houses and joined a group of friends downtown. We decided to hook up and just go out 
you know, it was like probably after midnight or something and uh, just walking around, you know, carrying on like, you know, making noise and probably disrupting the peace. That's what got someone to call it in. And the cops came, picked up. I think it was the other the other kids got away. Hattie and I got caught. The cops took them to the station and called their parents. Rhonda's dad got there first and was none too pleased. But then in walks John List, in a full suit, of course, even though it was the middle of the night. Patty's father was irate. He just started carrying on yelling at Patty. And then he came up to me and I thought my dad was going to punch him. But he said to me, you're, you're a bitch as well as a witch. And, um, you know, I was already scared. And did he yell it at you too, or did he just like sort of say it to you? Um, he said in a loud voice, we'll put it that way, and kind of walked towards me, you know, and his eyes are just like uh, scary. Like streaming, you know, like, uh, I don't know, scary. I think it's important to note, Rebecca, that this is about three or four months before John murdered his whole family in cold blood. It seems List was buckling under the pressure, and he saw the changes in Patty as a sign his family was on a path away from the church. You know, for List, that's a catastrophe. And can we talk about why John called Patty's friend Rhonda a bitch and a witch? Because that doesn't seem like an accident, Rebecca. In fact, we learn that near the end of her life, Patty considered herself to be a witch, a practicing witch. Jess, as you know, this was something I wanted to try to disprove because it just sounded so outlandish. I was like, we're going to do some interviews and debunk this. But Rhonda, Susan, and Chris all mentioned it. They were all Christians, and they said it freaked them out when Patty would talk about it. Here's Rhonda again. I don't call it witchcraft, okay? I don't know if she, what she actually... It was witchcraft, okay, but it's, um, uh, you know, like I said, uh, she told me a few things about it, and I just didn't want to have anything to do with it, nothing. I was scared of it. Okay, but don't all teenage girls have a witchy phase? I mean, I definitely had a Ouija board. Did you? I did not, but I definitely wanted to play with my friend's Ouija board and, like, get all creeped out about it. So while this whole witchcraft thing isn't a big deal to us, for John List, it would have been a huge problem. And now we're going to get even darker here, because we also learned something through our interviews with Patty's closest friends that surprised me. It managed to make me angrier at John List than I already was. It's that Patty appeared to have at least some idea that her father was going to do something, maybe for the last few months of her life. I don't know why I find this part so upsetting. I guess, I guess it's just awful to think that Patty's last weeks were filled with worry and actual fear of her father. Ed Saradaki remembers Patty saying some strange things that concerned him. He said in late September or early October of that year, Patty actually suggested that they run away together. He kind of laughed it off, but later she also mentioned her dad was making wills for them and had asked the kids what they wanted to have happen when they died. Would they want to be cremated? Would they want to be buried? Would they want to have a big obituary? Kind of weird stuff for a father to be asking his teenagers. But 
Patty related to me, and she goes, "What is that? How does that? You know, how does that make you feel, Ed?" I said, "I don't know, weird." <laughs> I said, "You know, but you know, your dad's an accountant. You know, he's worried about the numbers, and so you know, he's trying to plan for the future and trying to just brush it off." Now let's get to what she said to Susan a little less than a month before her death. Patty was showing Susan and a friend some witchy stuff, breaking out the Ouija board, talking about communicating with spirits. But then she said something that Susan will never forget. Pat said, you know, I have a feeling within me that, you know, something bad is going to happen. She didn't mention her father. She didn't mention John or Fred. She just said, I just have a feeling, you know, that something bad, you know, is going to happen. This is another thing that at that time probably seemed a little freaky, but what are these kids supposed to do? You can't report to your parents or the police that Patty says she has a bad feeling. And Susan knows that rationally, but it's still something she thinks about. Is there something that I should have seen and didn't? Is there something that I could have done and didn't? And, you know, with just that one ominous comment made by by Patty within a month of her death, it just, I mean, I told my mom about it, but you just say, oh, okay. So that that's kind of strange. I mean, nothing that you could act on. Both Ed and Susan said Patty never seemed afraid of her dad. It was just a strained relationship. But Rhonda, she said she saw something different, real fear. And not just because of that one time at the police station. It was more than that. At some point, she had told me that um, she knew her father wanted her and her brothers dead. Wow. So she said that she thought her dad wanted to wanted to kill them or wanted them dead. Mm-hmm. Wanted them dead. Yeah. I couldn't believe what I was hearing on this call with Rhonda, but I have no qualms about her credibility. She was really clear with me if there was something she didn't remember or couldn't be sure of. But she was sure of this. Patty said, my father wants us dead. That is freaking terrifying, Rebecca. It's one thing to not have his approval, and it's another to think he wants you gone. I mean, did Chris Day ever notice anything like that? She didn't say anything to him. But Chris said he did see something that now seems important on the last night he saw any of the lists. 48 hours later, the whole family would be dead. Remember, he had hurt Patty's feelings, so later he went to the list house to smooth things over with her. It didn't go like he wanted, and then it was time to leave. I remember going, coming up from the stairs, and there was two boys playing a game with on a card table right in the foyer there with, a fa- with their father. And he smiled at me and everything. So there's this game set up in this room that was never really used for anything right on his way to the door. I think he planned it. He planned for me to see that because I would see a loving father. And so when they went away, there would be like no questions asked. But of course, they didn't go away. That was just the cover story List would tell when he killed them. Hearing from Chris and all these friends, you really get a deeper understanding of how, even 50 years later, they all can't stop second-guessing themselves, blaming themselves, 
wondering if they could have done more. And it wasn't just them. I mean, you can really see how this reverberated. It impacted a whole generation, a whole community. Chris also remembered Patty telling him that in that final month or so, her father seemed lighter and more relaxed. Chris noticed it too. He said John List let things slide. He let Patty have a Halloween party and he even helped clean up. And now we know from the timeline, Rebecca, that might have been because List already had decided what he was going to do. John List was about to lose the family home and go bankrupt, a disgrace he couldn't bear. His wife was a burden and he resented her instead of pitying her. And everything his daughter did, from acting to dabbling in witchcraft, to him it was all a sign that the children were moving away from God and everything he thought was right. As the father and head of the family, he felt it was his responsibility to fix it. But he kept coming back to the same solution. It was awful and violent and a sin. But John List convinced himself... It was right. Deciding to do it was the hard part. Planning out the perfect murder, or five murders, that was easy. John List was a man who thrived on order, careful planning, and meticulous attention to detail. He was made for this. He would make a plan, and he would execute. And in our next episode, we're going to walk you through exactly how. We'll bring you back to 1971, and take you through the murders one by one. We've seen the crime scene photos. We talked to the cops who responded. And we'll also finally hear John List try to explain why he did this. He did everything. Dotted every T, crossed every I. You know, the ledger was balanced for him. Well, the kid tried to struggle and fought with him from what the crime scene indicated. I mean, you just shot your mother to death and you... You couldn't give her some comfort or some some dignity. I, I just can't cannot imagine someone doing what he did, claiming that God told him to do it, <laughs> and then stay in the same house, you know, tidy them up in the ballroom of the house. After he he killed them all and left. I was always so scared he was going to come back and get me. Isn't that crazy? I always thought that. Father Wants Us Dead is a production of NJ Advance Media. It's reported, written, and produced by us, Jessica Remo and Rebecca Everett. Christopher Kelly is our executive producer and director. Alyssa Pasagio and Kevin Whitmer are also executive producers. Father Wants Us Dead was recorded at Sound on Sound Studios in Montclair, New Jersey. Our sound designer, mixer, and editor is Jacob Stone. Jacob and Alex Ritchie composed the music, and Alex also helped mix the podcast. James Shapiro is our associate audio engineer with help from Natalie Patterson. Additional audio was provided by Adam Kolick and Andre Malloch. Our website was designed by Allah Salim. Special thanks to all our sources who agreed to talk to us, even though we know it wasn't easy. You can visit fatherwantsusdead.com for more about the story, including crime scene photos and other extras we couldn't fit into the show. And you can email us at inbox at fatherwantsusdead.com. Subscribe to Father Wants Us Dead wherever you get your podcasts. And if you're enjoying it, please rate and review it and help us spread the word.